Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 158, and today's guest is Claire Fakir, principal at Highland Capital Partners. I once read a blog post that stated a very interesting fact. The number of professional athletes in the U.S. is equal to the number of positions in venture capital. Needless to say, positions are scarce in the VC industry, and they are highly sought after. For Claire, she was determined to land a position in venture capital after getting her MBA at Wharton. She devoted months of her time sitting in coffee shops, researching and learning the industry while creating a recruiting plan, cold emailing VC firms, and offering her research to investors in hopes of landing an open position. Well, her determination paid off when she joined Corrigan Ventures, and she recently joined Highland to help the firm build out its New York City office. Highland has a long history of success as a leading VC firm, and their track record really speaks for itself to the tune of 46 IPOs and 127 acquisitions. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like how living in Kenya for six months influenced her career, her experience working in investment banking during the economic crisis, how dedication and commitment through cold emailing landed Claire a position in the VC industry, all the details on Highland Capital Partners and what she is targeting for investments, how to get investors to respond to cold email pitches, what first-time founders can expect during the process of raising capital, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, have you checked out our YouTube channel? It is loaded with lots of great content from our interviews with founders, executives, and investors. You will find lots of advice shared from these podcast interviews, plus our popular Inside and CXO briefing series. Go to youtube.com backslash VentureFizz to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Claire. Claire, thanks so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because uh, Highland Capital Partners is a great VC firm that I've uh, known for quite some time, uh, just through multiple iterations of things that I've done in the past. So it's a great firm with great people. But We've uh, been around for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had Bob Davis on the podcast at one point and Craig Driscoll and I go way back, but um well, let's uh, let's talk about kind of you know something that I found very unique about your background is you you spent six months living in Kenya for a private equity firm. Which talk about an amazing experience. So, what what was that like? Yeah, good question. So uh, I'll go a little bit further back. And when I was an undergrad, I went to Africa on the kind of typical family trip and. Um, I totally did the stereotypical thing where my family and I thought that it'd be sort of the trip of a lifetime, but it really was the trip to start a lifetime. Um, and I knew that if I did a little break from, you know, my sort of traditional career path, I needed to spend some time on the continent. So it was, it was totally personal driven. Um, and so I actually took a year off to travel before I went to business school because, I think in Canada, we're, we're much more willing to take gap years and whatnot. But given the career trajectory I had, I hadn't really had an opportunity until before business school. And so I made that leap and did that. And I knew that I needed to spend some time on the continent in some way. Um, and I started thinking about what I might be able to actually do that could actually add some value um, and started talking to some friends who were doing business school consulting projects for a bunch of startups and, and growth stage. Uh, firms in Nairobi and realized there might be an opportunity to spend some time working in the business community in Nairobi. Um, I was really fortunate to meet the team at Jakana Partners, which was a pan-African fund with offices in Accra and in Nairobi. 
Um, and they let me join for six months as a pre-MBA intern. So for me, it was really sort of twofold, right? It was a really cool experience to see growth equity and private equity from a different lens, because I think doing business in emerging markets is very, very different from in the US and in North America. Um, but I also got the experience to live and be totally immersed in the culture and the atmosphere, which is probably my number one goal, to be totally honest. Um, and I will say that it was one of the best experiences of my life because there were such amazing founders and entrepreneurs who were trying to do really big, ambitious ideas, but using oftentimes technology and methods from the developed world to bring it to you know, the mass market in developing worlds. And that was pretty fascinating to dive in and learn more on. That's really cool. So what was a, like an example of an idea that you're just blown away by? Oh, good question. So what we were doing at the fund was mostly um, private equity style deals. So cash infusions to businesses who had kind of plateaued and were, were um, gaining steam. But one sort of anecdote is we looked at a dairy farm that was pretty interesting and it was run as um, a mom and pop kind of operation. They had done really well. They penetrated a number of um, grocery stores with their uh, dairy products. And if you were coming from the U.S. looking at this business, you'd think it's you know old and antiquated because everything was done by hand. Um, but they were actually really, really proud of that because they were creating so many jobs and having so many workers there to physically you know churn product and to mix ingredients and, and rely so heavily on um, labor rather than machinery was actually giving a lot of people opportunity. And so they had families who had worked there for you know years and years and. Um, we invested in them with the thought of combining some technology and buying some machinery while also creating jobs and, and getting their workforce up to speed a little bit faster. And that was kind of cool to see because you don't really get those opportunities in um, the developed world. And we could sort of do this hybrid approach while also creating more job opportunities and bringing in things like um, healthcare plans, which were a little bit rare, and bringing in some employee benefits, which were pretty cool to institutionalize. Got it. Okay. Well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, talk about your background. So where'd you grow up and what were you like as a child? I grew up in Toronto. Um, so I am a proud born and raised Torontonian and proud Canadian. Um, my family and my sister are all still in Canada. So I made the trek down to the U.S. about nine years ago solo. It's been, it's been a fun experience, but I, I definitely still think of Canada as home. Um, what I was like as a child, that's, that's a good question. I think I was probably like a lot of VCs where I was, you know, very math and sciences focused, um, pretty athletic, pretty sort of probably sort of nerdy on the surface, but I still had lots of friends, which was nice. So I guess I sort of towed the line between those two. Um, I had zero idea what finance or business was, and I kind of stumbled into it by mistake, which is pretty hilarious. I think I thought I was going to be um, either a doctor or something in the sciences field because I loved math and sciences and I absolutely hated English and the humanities and, and all that kind of good stuff. Now, Toronto is absolutely blowing up. Talk about an ecosystem that is really, really like just developing and, and just has taken off. Totally. And it's so fun to see. Um, when I joined the venture world in 2015, I was convincing some of my friends that we should all spend more time in Toronto because I thought there was a ton of opportunity. And I was convincing, um, you know, people I did deals with and co-investments with that they should come with me and spend a couple of days seeing some companies. And I started doing that and I started building out my network in Toronto. And now people are sending me articles and deals and they're saying like, you really should pay attention to Toronto. 
I'm like, oh, should I? Very funny, should I? Um, but it, it's been really, really fun to see. And I've made some really great friends in the Toronto ecosystem. Um, some are high school friends that I've known for forever who are working in startups, which is really cool because I didn't really have that network here in the US. Um, and some are friends that I've made just from um, spending you know, a Thursday, Friday there when I go home from weekends. Um, but I think it's absolutely incredible what the government's done in order to spur innovation and, and keeping some tech talent at home. Mm -hmm. And Toronto really is becoming a hub for artificial intelligence and machine learning and for blockchain and for all of these sort of hard, big technical problems. And that makes me really, really proud. Yeah, no, there's so much going on there. No, yeah. so how about um, college? So where'd you go to school and what'd you end up studying? Yeah, I went to a school called Dalhousie on the East Coast. Um, it's in Halifax, which is part of the maritime provinces that stick out into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and I studied a finance degree. In, in Canada, we can choose uh, the degree that we apply for before we go. And so it was actually a Bachelor of Commerce in Finance, um, which was quite lucky. And I think I sort of stumbled into it because I sort of thought, you know, I don't know if I can commit to medicine forever, but I want to do something in numbers. So therefore I'll do commerce. And, uh, and that ended up working out in the end. Um, but it was a good program in that it was a co-op program. So I did three co-ops or work terms during the, the four years. Um, and I kind of stumbled into the banking system and that kind of led me into finance. Cause again, people were sort of saying, you know, you like numbers and you like thinking about the public markets. Why not do finance? So I did. Um, and then I stumbled into investment banking by doing um, two work terms in investment banking and solely just sort of thinking that these are some of the smartest people that I've been around. If some of the smartest people are hanging out in this industry, maybe I should give it a shot. Um, and then that's ultimately where I ended up after undergrad. Yeah. So talk about that experience. What was it like your, your first jobs coming out of school? So I started in 2008, which was the absolute pits of the recession. <laughs> um, <laughs> Rough time. I had, I had the you know, prototypical experience of being an intern in summer of 2007 when banks were spraying around cash and incentivizing analysts to come back by throwing parties every week and you know, the, the whole sort of like club life stuff that was really over the top. Um, and then I went back to undergrad for my fourth year and joined the summer of 2008 when everyone was terrified they were getting fired. So it was a real contrast. Um, the first year was a real slog. We did no deals. Everyone was terrified of getting let go. And there were three rounds of firing in my first year, but thankfully I, I persevered and I lasted. Um, and I had sort of the quintessential analyst experience, I think, where I worked incredibly hard. I did the, you know, hundred plus hours a week or whatever it is. Um, got killed on a number of deals, but was really lucky to see a number of interesting deals as well. And so while I sort of say that my four years in investment banking are something I'd never like to repeat, I'm really happy that I did them because I think uh, it is a really good boot camp for understanding under the hood of companies. So you decided to go um, to B school. So you went to Wharton. What, like, what was the thought there? Like, why did you decide to go back to B school? Oh man. Um, so I came out of undergrad thinking, there's no way I'm going to business school. I just did a four-year finance degree and going into investment banking, you know, no need. Um, but I did the four years in banking and throughout the final, I'd say three years, to be totally honest, I was trying to think about what I might want to do next. And I was coming up against roadblocks and couldn't figure out where I might be interested. So for me, business school was kind of a reset button. Um, I wanted to figure out something that I really had a passion for. 
Um, the things I knew coming out of banking were I didn't want to work at a big company ever again, and I didn't want to be in a client services business. I felt like all the interesting things about banking were poking around companies, learning about what they did, but then you were sort of handing off what you were doing to the company itself and really serving them as a client services business does. Um, and so I came into business school totally fresh-faced, thinking that I just wanted to explore and figure out what might be interesting. And so I did um, every info session you can probably imagine. I talked to everybody I knew. The only things I wrote off were investment banking and consulting because I knew I didn't want the big company or the client services business. And the more I talked about what I did want and the more people sort of saw the passion about what I was excited about, they started leading me towards startups, which at first, being somebody who had done oil and gas banking for four years, sounded like lunacy. Um, I had this notion in my mind that people that worked for startups were engineers who had been coding since they were 12 years old in their basements and you know were wearing Patagonia fleeces in Silicon Valley. And you know, I'd never really been part of that world. So uh, I thought they were absolutely bonkers. And people started telling me that investment bankers may have a skill set that startups wanted. <laughs> um, and so I started to explore it more and more. And then like we all do, got pretty enamored with the startup world. So if, if someone's considering going back to B school, um, you know, what advice would you give to someone on, you know, how to, you know, get into one of the top programs? I mean, Wharton's, you know, one of the best of the best. So, um, you know, so, so what, what do you think is the, the right advice to give to someone on the application process for admissions? Yeah, good questions. I think what I've learned from talking to a number of friends in my own process is that it is very hard to anticipate what uh, business schools want. It is so random. You know, I got into Wharton, but then I got waitlisted and rejected from some of my schools that I thought were, you know, quote unquote, safety schools. So who knows what people pick? And I think everybody has sort of a similar experience. Um, I think the, the best thing about it is trying to align a business school around what your ultimate goals are and then making sure that you've got the experience and the um, the, the verbiage correct in the essays around what you want to achieve from it. And one thing that really stood out for me for Wharton was that everyone I had talked to before spoke of how highly they valued the student life at Wharton and how highly the school thought about you as a well-rounded candidate. And so an example of that was um, about 10 years ago or 15 years ago or so, Wharton hired a dean of student, student life. Dean, sorry, dean of student life. And the sole function of the dean of student life was to make sure that the MBA experience was well-rounded one, that people were enjoying themselves, they were getting as much as they wanted out of the school program. Um, and that was evident to me on the application process in that they asked some questions around sort of interests outside of just, you know, conquering the world and the typical business school application questions. For me, that really resonated because as we talked about, I took a year off to travel before business school because I really wanted the experience to go work in a new market. I wanted to see the world from a different perspective and all those various things. And so I think I was able to tell my story a little bit better to Wharton because I perceived it as they valued sort of the well-roundedness and broad base of, of the student body. Um, I don't think that may have been perceived as well at other schools, but I got lucky with sort of what resonated with that school. Yeah. Well, after uh, Wharton, you ended up in venture capital. So how did all that come together? Oh, man, here's a good story. Um, <laughs> so I, I, uh, I worked at a startup for my summer internship between first and second year. They were a Series B funded um, fintech startup in London. 
and it was a good experience. It was a fun way to be part of the operating side of things. Um, but I didn't love it. Um, that was sort of specific to that startup just in that, um, they had just gotten some funding. And so, um, when guys who have come from the corporate world had just gotten series B funding and they think about growing the first thing they do is hire a bunch of MBA students to figure it out. Right. And so it was a little bit, um, unclear what our KPIs were and what we were doing over the summer. So that was sort of a specific thing. But what I realized what I missed was talking to a number of different people every day. And that sort of curiosity in me that I actually liked in banking, which was talking to a number of different companies and seeing how markets come together and how different people value certain pieces of a company um, was still an interest. And I wanted to explore that, but I was enamored with the tech world. So that led me to BC. Knowing that my resume wasn't speaking like, you know, the most sought after resume because I hadn't had a big tech company or tech banking on my resume, I knew I had to sort of lean into what my differentiator might be. Um, so I quite literally locked myself in a Starbucks for about 40 hours a week for four months, the one actually at Spruce and 19th Street in Philadelphia, which I have fond memories of. Um, and I started quasi studying, to be totally honest. I made myself a recruiting plan. The first month and a half was me writing down all the news of the day in spiral bound notebooks that, that happened in the tech world. I'd start researching some industries I thought were interesting. Um, and I'd start putting together some thoughts that I had. And the rationale for that was that I figured that there's sort of two ways to get into venture. There's and the overarching theme is to get into venture, I think you sort of display the behaviors of a VC before you're doing the job, because this should be something that sort of resonate with and you really want to do. And so the two ways for me were really start sending deal flow, of which I had none because I was an oil and gas banker before, um, or start analyzing companies and markets and trying to do the outbound method of sourcing. And so I leaned into that one. So I started doing... Um, this research and started making market maps. And then I started going through all the VCs I wanted to meet and used either warm intros, a way to get in front of those VCs or quite literally cold emails. Um, and I just started a discourse with VCs and started coming up from Philadelphia to New York every other Friday or something and having coffee chats. And the basis of those conversations was, hey, I've done some work in some of the spaces that I know you're interested in. How about I share the thoughts of my findings with you? Um, in exchange for coffee. Um, and I was very deliberate. I chose a couple of spaces that were broad enough that they'd appeal to most consumer funds. They were sort of niche enough that someone wouldn't have spent, you know, 80 hours on them. Um, and this was back in 2015, which seems like a lifetime ago in the venture space. And there just weren't a ton of funds hiring, especially at that level in 2015. Um, so it was a lot of coffee chats and, uh, Eventually, I met the Corrigan team and we started chatting and I don't think they even had a role open, but I started looking at some companies for them. And then um, poetically, it was the night before my graduation when I got a call from one of the GPs and he said, hey, we're thinking about bringing you on. What do you think? I think I asked him to repeat himself and then I said, yes. <laughs> uh, that is a really cool story. I mean, so like, you know, sometimes people think, um, you know, just kind of, oh, they, you know, show up on campus or something, which they don't. It's, um, you know, venture capital is a different industry where, um, you know, unless you're coming in as an experienced entrepreneur who has had, you know, a, a massive exit and you're coming in as a partner, you know, the uh, principal associate, senior associate roles, it is kind of like a, a mystery of how sometimes people land in those roles. So it was really cool how you actually built a plan of attack and made it happen. And, um, 
I love how you're cold emailing too. And that's something we're going to talk about a little bit because there's kind of like a, a science and, and uh, a method that you have that's uh, interesting to share. But so, so when you yeah. joined Corrigin, like what was your, you know, what did you focus on? What were your area of investment in some of the companies you worked with? Yeah. So I joined the fund when it was really about a year into being formalized. And so the history of the fund was really that one of the GPs had been making some angel investments and those had gone really well. Um, and he, by happenstance, met the other GP and they realized they sort of had a shared view of the world in, in technology and startups and decided to formalize a venture fund um, within sort of the, the family office that one of the GPs ran. And um, this, this GP that joined, named David, um, he had joined about a year before me and he spent the first six months or so really formalizing what the fund might look like and then six months later started doing investments. And so I joined pretty early on. And what was so intriguing from the beginning is that when I was chatting with the two of them, the conversation was all around this opportunity to shape the strategy of how we invest and what we think is the most exciting in the seed world. So to me, it was kind of like picking this itch of being at a startup, growing something and thinking about the strategy, putting something in place, but also being able to invest and work with portfolio companies and with founders and stuff like that. And so my three and a half years or three and three quarter years that I spent at Corrigent was pretty spectacular in the outsized amount of responsibility and things that I saw when I was there. Um, I sort of did everything from soup to nuts of the sourcing, diligencing deals, sitting on boards, working through term sheets, negotiating terms, et cetera, to even doing some backend stuff like putting together a cash flow model and handling some of our fundraising and annual audits and, and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like I sort of got the, the you know, fund 101 boot camp in a way, which was pretty interesting. Um, from a vertical perspective, we sort of honed in on our strategy over the years and realized we really were the seed fund and wanted to be one of the top seed funds thought about in New York as you know a one-stop shop, first call for that real hands-on seed investor. And so that guided the basis of what we did. And then beyond that, we tended to do, um, I'd say sort of three real buckets, but they can be incredibly broad. And they were around consumer products and services, tech-enabled marketplaces, and prop tech. Um, under those, you know, the, the gamut that we touched was incredibly wide, like consumer fintech, some digital health, um, some tech-enabled two-sided marketplaces, um, you know, all the way down to brands and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I think you were a, a board observer for one of the, um, so Christiane Lemieux was uh, one of my podcast guests from, from the inside. Wonderful. I led that deal and I think incredibly highly of Christiane and Britt and I still talk to them bi-weekly or something like that. Um, and so I'm big, big fans of them. So now you're, uh, with Highland Capital. So, um, Highland, so there, there wasn't an actual physical office for Highland in, in New York. So, you know, what is your role? What did they bring you on to do and, and kind of what's your area of focus as well? Yeah, you're, you're all right there. Um, I was brought on, um, I think, as sort of being sector, ag or, uh, sorry, location agnostic, um, but as sort of net positive that I was in New York. Um, and so my mandate is not necessarily to own the New York market. It's sort of to be a formalization of what we've already been doing in New York the last number of years. Um, Highland's portfolio is pretty deep in New York already with well-known companies like Freshly, Harry's, Rent the Runway, et cetera. Um, and so before I joined, there were a number of investors that were coming to New York 
I'd say at least weekly or something like that. And they were doing, you know, the typical VC runaround of going to hotel lobbies and coffee shops and, um, and startup offices and stuff like that. And so I think me joining was really sort of a, okay, this makes sense. Let's plant our flag around this market. And then we can sort of truly be in every major market from a venture perspective. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I found a, an, an office here in New York and opened it. Um, we have our team running through it all the time, which is great. And we're a pretty mobile team. So we're usually together frequently. Um, and my job is, is really sort of to be, um, an investor and a generalist investor, like much of the team is, um, to focus on the early growth stage that, that we're calling, um, our strategy these days, which is really companies that hit sort of the four to 5 million run rate revenue, um, that are ready to really put fuel on the fire and, and continue hyper growth. Um, we don't organize ourselves across sectors, but I tend to look at, I'd say more tech enabled consumer and marketplaces, just given that, that was my background. Um, but I've looked at some enterprise as well, and that's been kind of fun since we didn't do too much at Corrigin. So it's, it's been kind of nice to be opportunistic, to jump on things that um, are really sort of hitting their stride and at our sweet spot. Yeah, no, I mean, as you highlighted, Highland has just the, you know, great success with portfolio companies in New York, like Rent the Runway, Harry's was acquired by Unilever, Handy, and lots and lots of others. So it's, uh, it was, I, I was Harry, Harry's was Edgewell, by the way. It was, okay. Yep, yeah. Got yep. it, okay. Um, but, but yeah, sorry, please continue. Yeah, so um, when you have people reaching out to you, you know, interested in getting coffee to talk about a potential investment, like what, what's the best way to get on your radar, like to get your attention? I hate to say it, I think the best way is through warm connections. Um, and I don't mean that to sound closed off to founders in any way, but I think in an ecosystem like New York, there's so many opportunities to get involved in the startup ecosystem that it's not difficult to get warm intros these days. And you and I know this because we met at the uh, SoGal pitch night, which um, I love doing those events because I love the SoGal team. But I've since followed up with two or three of the founders that were at that event. Um, even though they're too early for me, they wanted some advice or wanted to chat and reach out to me. And to me, that seems like a great opportunity to connect because I see that they're making an effort. They're going to these events. They want to get in front of the investors that they want to get in front of. I'm much more likely to then send them to one of my friends who does pre-seed or seed investing because I've seen they've made an effort. And so I don't think it necessarily means that you have to be the most connected tech person in the world because that will close off a lot of founders. But I think that, that putting yourself in the flow of information and in the flow of people is the best way to do it. Um, more often than not, that goes much further than, you know, a, a sort of really blind cold email. Having said that, um, you know, I am, I, I am an advocate for cold emails because I think if they're done right, they can, they can work well. Um, the caveat to that is I probably respond to one in 50 cold emails because I think 49 and 50 are poorly done. Um, so I, I think at the end of the day, um, despite all the technology in our business, this is a network-based business. And so time in front of people um, really has no substitute. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if I was an investor, so I'm not speaking for you, but it, this is, you know, if, uh, if an entrepreneur isn't doing their homework on who to speak to because different funds have different thesis or level seed, you know, series A, that if they're not carving down the funnel of who they should be spending time on, and figure out how to get a warm intro, 
the likelihood of them succeeding in building a business is probably a, an indication of that, you know, level of persistence and long-term success, at least in my opinion. So. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting point too, because to a certain degree, it's sort of like closing a big account. Um, and so the much, much the way they think about the warm interest and the right way to get to the CEO of a big account, venture investors are kind of the same thing in a way. It's sort of a sales process. Um, and I just think in this day and age of so much access to investors that it's not super tricky to, to find a way to connect. Um, it's not easy. I will acknowledge that for sure. But um, I, I think there's enough going on that it's reasonable to get in the flow and research really and figure out the people that it makes sense connecting with. Okay. So once someone does you know, set up you know, a coffee meeting with you, what, what do you expect out of that first meeting? I think what I really want to assess in the first meeting is, is someone tackling a big market and are they the ideal person to be tackling that market? Um, we talked a lot at Corrigin, and this carries over now, to the concept of founder market fit. And I think that's a really important one. Um, what we're looking for at the early stage is something that's going to grow into a huge business. And one of the key things about that is how well the founding team is going to execute. Because in this day and age, there aren't a ton of proprietary ideas. It's execution that really wins the day. And so why am I going to believe that X founding team is going to beat Y founding team at the same problem? Because I can guarantee that we're probably seeing a number of competitors and there's a lot of people trying to tackle the same consumer. So to me, that's sort of an outsized ability or an outsized reason that that founding team chose the market. And that could be anything from a personal connection, a personal pain point, spent time at the incumbent and seeing how the incumbent is broken. It could be a network. It could be some BD connections. Who knows? But I think it's some thoughtfulness around why this pain point and this problem resonates and why this founder wants to spend you know, some really uncomfortable years building a business. Now, if you are a first-time founder, um, I know this question probably has different variations depending on each unique situation, but what can someone expect as far as the actual process of raising capital? That's a great question. And I think the short answer is that it really varies fund by fund. I think much like we would do in a sales process, it's worthwhile to set up those barriers and set the expectation with every fund. And I think it's very reasonable for founders to ask that in the first meeting. You know, something along the lines of, what does your process look like and what should I expect? And I think a lot of founders do that, um, but it, it helps put everybody on the same page because a lot of funds are very, very different. Um, for us, and we are very upfront and very candid about this, we can be quick and we don't waste founders time for the sake of it, but we can't rush getting to know a founding team into a short amount of time. And so we typically don't work well by being, you know, time constrained or pressured into, um, into joining a, a fast moving process unless we feel like we can get comfortable enough to a certain point. And I think that's really important too, because um, when we're investing in companies and likewise, when founders are accepting our capital, we're signing up to a five to 10 year partnership. And so from the founder perspective as well, they should make sure that they really want to work with us and they want us to be on their board and to be their quasi bosses. You know, that's a, that's a pretty intimate relationship that will be formed over the next several years. And so I like to tell founders that up front that, look, we won't waste your time 
but we need to spend the physical time and we need to be to be meeting with you and your team to figure out if this is the right thing for both of us. Sure. Now, as far as the um, the New York tech scene, there's a lot of uh, just sectors. I mean, it's always been known for like, you know, fintech and uh, digital media consumer, but there's such a broad range of interesting, you know, sectors of technology, robotics, and so, you know, enterprise software, SaaS. Um, so, so how are you finding the, the New York tech landscape these days as far as different, um, you know, sectors that are appealing to you? And then are there any, you know, one or two companies that you're like, wow, you know, like they need to be outside the Highland portfolio that you're like, wow, what they're doing is really interesting. Yeah. Well, I think the New York ecosystem is really, really exciting and it has changed so quickly, which is awesome to see. I remember when I was going through my list of investors I wanted to get in front of in 2015 and the list of New York funds was relatively short. You know, there was still kind of that stigma that unless you were in Silicon Valley, you kind of didn't matter. Um, and that has shifted because we've seen so many SF investors come and play in the New York market. And I think a lot of investors who are based in SF are starting to spend, you know, one week every six weeks or something in New York, whereas, you know, four or five years ago, they'd sort of be laughed at for doing that. And similarly to your point, I think New York was sort of known for maybe a couple markets 10 years ago. And now there really are, you know, enterprise SaaS companies and, um, fintech companies and prop tech, which five years ago was real estate tech because no one was paying attention. Um, and there's a good crypto and blockchain world happening and ton of consumer businesses and media companies. And there's just such a broad swath of, of stuff going on. There's, you know, healthcare and health tech is broadening, which is, which is pretty interesting as well. Um, so that makes me really excited. I think the, um, the, the consumer sort of landscape that we've got here is really exciting. I don't think that um, other markets have the same kind of consumer world that we have in New York, which is pretty cool, just given the concentration of um, partnerships and, and media and sort of this perfect node of the ingredients that consumer businesses need to grow in a really big consumer base. And so the proliferation of um, digitally native brands in New York is, is pretty exciting. We'll see where that goes. but. Um, that I think is is pretty cool, and there's tons of great brands in the space, obviously. And I I really respect Glossier in particular for building a brand that, in my opinion, has been built off of um, the organic excitement of its consumer base rather than just marketing dollars, which I think is is something special. They found a really really special marketing channel and created a a personal identity with their consumer base that created you know a really really high growing business um, in a space that you might not think would have the type of metrics like a software company that would grow over time with high margins and, and really steep growth. Um, and then I think there's some great stuff happening in FinTech. You know, we're really, we really are the hub of FinTech, which is natural because the banking space is here and the connection to, um, to really the power center where money is controlled is here. And so I think if there are FinTech companies being built, they're probably thinking of coming to New York first, which wasn't the case, you know, 10 years ago. And, and that's nice to see as well. What do you, what are you seeing out there for, you know, you touched upon Glossier, which to your point, it's built on people using the product and word of mouth and just building a buzz from its, you know, consumers that are using the product versus raising 50, hundred million dollars to just spend, spend, spend to acquire. So, so what are you seeing out there that, you know, um, with customer acquisition strategies, like, uh, you know, as an investor, like what, what do you tend to like to see 
um, you know, as it relates to, you know, building your customer base. Yeah, that, that's a meeting one I spend a lot of time thinking about because um, CAC and marketing channels have become so expensive these days as um, we're continually hitting consumers with products over and over and over again. And the channels that we're using are getting incredibly saturated. Um, I use Glossier as an example because I think that um, at the end of the day to create a long lasting um, incredibly sticky company with good underlying business economics and, and business unit economics, um, you need to have a solution for a problem for a consumer. And I think at the end of that day, end of the day, that gets down to having a product that really resonates with the consumer. And from a brand perspective, that means sort of a touch of magic, I think. That can be either a brand resonating with personal identity or, or whatever that is. I think otherwise you are fueling your growth with marketing, which is not sustainable over the long term. And so I look at companies at the early stage where it's a little bit hard to tell what that magic is. I look at repeat rate. I look at referral rates because typically consumers who love products want to tell all their friends about them. Um, that to me is much more powerful and by the way, much cheaper than pummeling money into marketing. But having said that, I think that, marketing dollars and smart marketing tactics play a really great hand-in-hand -hand role with having really good product. At the end of the day, marketing can't cover up the lack of a good product. Um, and so Glossier, I think, really tapped into their community through content, through that resonance, and, and um, has a really, really loyal, sticky consumer base. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how, you know, the old is relevant and still not new but you know meaningful like you know email like controlling your own channel and gary vanyachuk he's out there you know giving out his 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 phone his mobile number because he wants to have that direct line of the other person's cell phone number so that he can manage that as a channel for you know sure. consumers sure sure we're all going full circle too everybody's using direct mail now and pop-up shops which is <laughs> really just retail because online has become so expensive that omni-channel is sort of a new way to do some brand marketing and we all come full circle. <laughs> it's so true because I, I was in Boston last week and the new area that's developed in the seaport, you walk down and it's uh, Warby Parker, Away luggage. It's just like it's all, you know, direct to consumer with retail shops right in the seaport. So it's, uh, it's, it is interesting. Totally. Um, and Bonobos really started that trend with their showrooming. Um, and I think that's become sort of the modern omni-channel approach for a lot of these brands. Yep. They were there too. <laughs> so, so Exactly. I like, exactly. I, like I was walking down Manhattan. I'm like, oh. <laughs> but so, well, try riding the subway in Manhattan. <laughs> oh, I know. I, believe me, I know. It's, it's plastered with uh, consumer advertising. But um, Exactly. Let's, let's break down um, your email strategy because you had a whole, you know, blog post that went deep into this, the cold email yeah. strategy. Yeah, uh, yeah. So detail that. So you said out of 50 emails, you might respond to one because the 49 others are just not really, you know, well written to get your attention to reply. So what yep. is the secret of that one email that, um, you know, you would write that would get a response? Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, I think it's common sense, but to break that down, um, I think the, the secret to cold email is not volume, but it's quality. And so I think a lot of people think that cold email is a numbers game and you need to blast out, you know, 200 emails to get one response if we're, if, or if we're using the same ratio, 200 emails to get four responses. Um, 
and I think that's incredibly ill-advised. Um, I do think that cold email can be really well constructed if it's really thoughtful. And so when I was doing out my outreach strategy that I talked about, I was making a plan to reach out to a couple investors a week. And so by doing a couple investors a week, I could really be thoughtful in the email I was sending. And I had done these market maps that I knew would be different for different funds and how they would react to them. So I could write emails that were a little bit more tailored to each fund by saying, hey, I know that you've done XYZ deals in an adjacent space. I've done some work in the category. I'm a business school student. I talked to some of these founders. I just love to share my thoughts with you in exchange for your thoughts on the venture space. How about we grab coffee? And how do you not respond opinion, to if someone put that much time, right. effort, and energy into that email? How do you not? Re, how do you just click delete? You're not going to. Right, right. And so I've told founders that you know if you sort of make this tiered approach and you reach out to five investors a week and you sort of manage that, you know, you might get three that don't respond and you get two that do respond. Then you can add three more the next week, kind of thing. Um, your hit rate is so much higher than blasting out 200 emails. And the 49 emails I get out of 50 are you know, inconsistent fonts because people have copied and pasted. I can't tell you how many times they get people saying something like, you must be interested in this deal because you do XYZ strategy and it's like the total opposite strategy to what we do. So they clearly haven't looked at our website. Um, and so um, I think if you spend some time and figure out why you want to get in front of those five investors, it, it goes back to sort of what we talked about with the warm intros too, right? If you spend some time and figure out why you want to talk to those five investors and you're thoughtful and you email them with why you want to speak with them. And I think here's another key. You don't sort of ask for too much, but you know, you sort of are blunt with what you do want. So they know what they're committing to. Then I think people have a much higher chance of responding. Um, it's just that we've sort of given cold email a bad rap because people think you just have to blast something out to the entire universe, which um, tends to be really, really low hit rate. So something I picked on that you talked about is the inconsistency of fonts. Yeah, that drives me crazy. Well, so if you have HTML enabled in your email, which you know, pretty much any modern person's going to yep. have that enabled, uh, it's definitely something that I've picked up on where um, you know, if I am copying and pasting something into, a, a, into Gmail, I go back and highlight the whole thing and I pick the font and I make sure the size and I do see the whole thing shift because if I had sent it the way I copy and pasted it, it totally would have shown up to your point yep. as a copy and paste email versus a well thought out email. So just another tip yep. of formatting and how, you know, the Gmail client works. So, you know what I even do sometimes actually is if it's something as important, like a founder wanting to get in front of, you know, the five VCs they want to get in front of, I just retype out every email. Yeah. And it might sound like it's inefficient, but if you think about it, it actually does two things really. One, you don't get any of those formatting errors and yeah. it only takes, you know, five minutes to type out a new one. Two, it actually means that you're changing the verbiage. So your tendency is to make it a little bit more custom and not so templatized for each person. Yeah. You're just sort of naturally going to say different things. And I think that helps from a cold email perspective as well. Absolutely. So you're super busy, um, you know, with, with Highland and looking at deals, not just in New York, but any, you know, across both coasts. Um, so what would you recommend uh, these days is any, um, you know, books or podcasts and they, they don't have to be business. They can be, or they could be for fun. So anything that's uh, things that you'd recommend out there. Mm, good question. One of my favorite books actually in the quasi startup space is radical candor. Um, it is a book that is 
probably best meant for managers, but I think to a certain degree, we all get a ton of lessons from it. And it's really sort of how to interact with people you have high touch relationships with at work. The whole genesis being that if you care deeply enough about the people that you work with, you should be giving them honest, candid feedback because you're going to be making them better rather than hiding what you really want to tell them they need to improve upon because that's never going to help anybody. And it gets to the heart of human relationships, I think, in that we may think that caring about our employees means, you know, we know their birthdays or whatever, but caring about our employees or coworkers is really knowing what motivates them, what they're excited about at work, what they really want to improve on, what they want to focus time on. And then if we can frame their development in that way, it's a really personal and, um, sort of forward-thinking framework um, for interacting with people because then the recipient really knows that the feedback is helpful. Now, outside of work, what do you like to do for fun? Oh, I, uh, I like sports a lot. So I play tennis and squash. Um, tennis is less uh, easy to play in New York, unfortunately. Um, but I'm a member of a squash club and I play squash. And then in the winters, I love to ski. Um, and then besides that, uh, I love taking advantage of the art in New York city. So I'm a big fan of going to the galleries. That's awesome. Well, yeah. Claire, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and all the tips and, and advice that you shared as far as other entrepreneurs on raising capital. And of course, uh, how to crush the cold email game. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be a guest and, and this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.